You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. We're in 1 Peter, uh, short letter by the Apostle Peter, uh, and we've gotten through like 12 verses in, what, three weeks or so. Uh, but in those first 12 verses, what Peter has been focusing on is, is the essential message of Christianity, that the, good, the good news, what, what, what Christians call the gospel, right? And, and the way Peter described that beautifully in those first 12 verses is that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance uh, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And we've been unpacking all of that, okay? And now we come to verse 13, and Peter begins to shift gears. Uh, and this is the typical New Testament pattern. It's the Christian pattern. Uh, most, a lot of people think Christianity is, you know, here are the rules, follow the rules, and God will love you. Uh, that's, it's, it, that's 180 degrees off. Uh, Christianity is, here's the gospel. Here's how God has loved you. L- look how God has loved you. Now, knowing what God has done, knowing how he has demonstrated his love to you, here's how you respond. And, and that's what Peter's getting into now, is this section where, where he's now beginning to talk about what the human response to the Lord's goodness uh, and grace to us is. Uh, It's the, another way to say it is, right, we get, we first get the indicatives, right, the the truths of the faith before we get the imperatives, right, the things that we we must do as as followers of Jesus. So our text today is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. We're covering a few verses here today. If you don't have a Bible with you, it's printed for you in the worship folder, so you can follow the reading there. Um, I'm going to ask you, if you're able, one more time to stand. We do this for the reading of God's Word because it's a biblical sign of respect. Uh, You're not showing me respect, we're showing the Lord respect. I'm the reader, God's the speaker. So, 1 Peter 1, beginning of verse 13, therefore... Right? Therefore, now that I've explained the gospel to you, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will, will, will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. 
This is God's word. You can be seated. Thank you. Let's pray together. Lord, we are inadequate, certainly I am inadequate to communicate your truth in a way that will change and transform our hearts. So I would ask that your spirit would be present here, open our hearts, open our minds to what you are saying to us today. Forgive our sins, help us by your Holy Spirit to to live responsively to the gospel, to live in a way that honors you and, and testifies to those watching us of the reason for the hope that is in us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it'd be an interesting quiz question. Uh, Did you know that a five-letter word built a 110-year-old company? What is IBM, Alex? It's not Alex anymore, is it? Uh, Yeah, the company's IBM. Uh, And the word, the five-letter word that helped create it is think. Since 1914, that word, think, uh, has been printed on everything from IBM signs to desk plates, business cards, coffee mugs, and notepads. IBM has, for over a century now, created a culture that with that one five-letter word, think, Uh, has created a corporate culture that encourages thinking. Uh, And that thinking culture has in turn produced a lot of business success. A relatively recent IBM uh, television spot went like this. IBM is working every day to make us smarter because we believe all the problems of the world would be solved if men, women, Students, leaders, citizens, and machines would simply think. That's a pretty grandiose claim. All the problems of the world solved if we would simply think. Uh, From a Christian worldview, uh, that confidence in in human reason is, is somewhat naive, right? It doesn't take into account the effect of sin on our thinking processes, on the inability of human beings to eradicate sin from, uh, from our hardwiring, our hearts. Nevertheless, IBM is on to something, I think, that Christians can, uh, can agree with, and that is the importance of critical thinking. And that may surprise some of you, uh, if, if you're like some of my non-Christian friends, I, I have uh, a number of non-Christian friends who, who say they refuse to believe in Christianity because they say, uh, we are thinking people, not faith people. Right? Now, of course, in saying that, they're implying that you know, in order to be a Christian, you have to check your brain at the door. And I'll, you know, they're my friends. I'll ignore the insult. But they are, but they're just wrong. 
right? They're, they're wrong that uh, Christianity is, involves some irrational uh, leap in the dark. Uh, Christianity of all the world religions, uh, more than any of them, uh, especially the major Eastern religions, which actually move us away from critical thinking, move us away from thought. Christianity moves us toward it, calls us to it, calls us to deep, focused, reflective thinking. Christians are not afraid of that. We're encouraged to do it. And actually, I would argue that it is my, my non-Christian friends who actually think less than Christians, right? It was one of them, as I, I've told you about him before, a dear friend of mine, uh, was honest enough w- with me to say, Ted, look, one of the reasons I work so hard at everything I do is because I don't want to think about what you keep talking about. And, you know, he's honest. Jesus Christ forces us to face some important ultimate issues that uh, people don't want to face, but Christianity makes us face them. So, how does the apostle Peter here, uh, who's, you know, writing in the power of the Holy Spirit, I mean, can you believe the depth and the beauty of his writing here? And, and, and to know, you know, here's, here's a, 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 a man who before his encounter with Christ was a, uh, uneducated fisherman. Uh, how does he tell you and me now to live as people who believe in Jesus and follow Jesus? He lays out two big guiding principles here. Okay, where it's the, he's going to get more specific. There's there's not a lot of specificity here. There's some. He's going to get much more specific as we move forward in the letter. But right now, as he's sort of introducing the, the, the whole subject of how we should live, he, he's, he's given us some, some guiding principles, more of a big picture. The first principle, verses 13 through 16, is what I, I would call think your way to action. And there's the connection with thinking. Right? Think your way to action. And then the second guiding principle, verses 17 through 21, is live with reverent fear. So think your way to action and, and live with reverent fear. We're gonna, what we're going to do is just unpack those two, those two principles. Okay, so first, verses 13 through 16, think your way to action. The Christian faith is not merely believing the truth. It, it is that, but it's not just that. Uh, it's also living the truth. And we are not to just be hearers of the word, we are to be doers of the word. Um, and sincere belief in the true, genuine belief in, in, in the truth of the gospel will inevitably lead you to action. If it doesn't, uh, then, then what you really you should go back and question, do I really believe it? <laughs> do I really believe the gospel? If you sincerely believe it, it will lead to action. C- Peter communicates this in a vivid way in verse 13. Um, our translation says, preparing your minds for action. That's a good translation, but it's not a literal translation. 
The, in, in the literal translation of what Peter wrote in Greek is girding up the loins of your mind. And now perhaps you can see why the ESV translators went with preparing your minds for action. Because, you know, what do loins have to do with brains? Um, it's, it's an image that's foreign to us, right? Um, but, but, it's, but it's an important image, and it's a powerful image. <clears throat> and it comes from Peter's cultural context. He, remember, in his day, men and women wore long robes. And if you were going to do something physical, if you were going to run, or if you were going to go to battle or if you were going to work in the field, do some strenuous work in the field, what you would do is take your robe and pull it up, right? Pull it up between your legs, pull it up on the sides, and tuck it all into your belt. Girdle, right? And, and that, that, that's, you know, picking up your robe, stuffing it in your belt, that was called girding your loins, Right, so he says that's what you should do with your mind. Right, you're, you, what, you've got to get your mind ready for action, just like you get your body ready for action when you're when you're girding your loins up. Right, gird up the loins of your mind. Get ready for strenuous work. So how do you do that? Well, you know, how do you get your mind ready for action? Well, Peter gives us three things, three directives here, and again, remember not. Super specific, but here they are. They're directives and important. First, verse 13, he says, we should be, uh, your mind should be sober, sober-minded, is what our translation says. That's a good, again, another good translation, but I, I, I don't favor it because in the way we use English, right, we associate sober with, you know, being the opposite of drunkenness. And there's some, you know, that's it's possible, but that's not really what he's, the, what he's emphasizing here. What, another, I think a better way to say it would be to say, uh, make sure that your minds are fully engaged, that you are giving the Lord your full undivided attention. Okay? We're, cust- we're accustomed today, aren't we? Especially because of technology uh, to, uh, to give things divided attention. Divided it, not undivided, divided attention. Have you ever had to give some kind of, uh, you know, business presentation that you've worked really hard on, and the people, and there you're giving your presentation, and the people that you most need to hear what you're saying are at the very moment you're speaking, checking their phones, right? Have you ever preached a sermon? And the very moment you're preaching, I'm sorry, not putting you on a guilt trip there. Uh, you know, we, we do that all the time, don't we? we? We've just gotten accustomed to giving almost everything our divided attention. Uh, one, you know, one ear on the speaker, you know, one eye on, on the text. Uh, and... Um, it's frustrating, right? Because you know that 
you, as if you're trying to communicate something in your business presentation that, that, that they're not fully focused. They're not, they're, not, they're not making what you have to say their priority at the moment. And Peter says, that's exactly how you should not treat the Lord. You know, it's very easy for us to do that, to just have the Lord sort of be one more thing on our calendar uh, and, and we sort of treat him and our commitment to him and, and, and the way we deal with him sort of, you know, on a par with everything else we're doing and we just sort of balance it all out with our divided attention. And Peter says, no, you know, the Lord's different. He, he demands your full attention. That's the first direction. Second, we prepare our minds for action by focusing on future grace. Do you see that in verse 13? Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I know he doesn't say, you know, set your minds on it or think about the grace that will be brought to you. He says, set your hope. But that's how you set your hope on something, right? Is by thinking about it, right? It's not, it's not like you, you sit there and you go, I need to hope harder. I got to work on my hope, you know? Hope, 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 right? It's, it, think about a, 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 a kid hoping about, for his birthday party. Right? What, he's not saying, oh, I've got to hope harder in my birthday party. No, he's just thinking about the friends that are going to be there and the presents that are going to be there and the cake and all that, right? And the more he thinks about it, the more he is setting his hope on, on that birthday party. So, so it's just, you know, he's, Peter is really telling us, get, get your minds around this future grace. Now, it's interesting, future grace, the grace that will be brought to you. You know, we spend a lot of time here at New Life talking about past grace, don't we? And, and rightly so, right? Paul said, I, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was, that's, that's a past event demonstrating God's grace, right? As we focus on the incarnation, the Lord coming in the flesh, God coming in the flesh to the world as we focus on the crucifixion, Jesus Christ dying for our sins, as we focus on the resurrection, Jesus being raised from the dead for our justification. Those are all events in history, past tense, right? They happened in the past that demonstrate God's amazing grace. But Peter doesn't want to, is saying, I want you to focus, no, he's not saying don't focus on that, but he's saying, get your minds around the future grace. Get, get your minds around the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation uh, of Jesus. And he's reminding us here that, you know, we're not at the end game yet. I mean, we're, we're, as Christians, we're experiencing some of the wonderful blessings of being in a relationship with the Lord through what Jesus has done. But it, we're, it's, it, we're not experiencing it fully yet. We don't know it fully yet, right? That, that in some sense, the work that Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection is not yet finished. It, there's, it, it's, it's his, right, it's, it's not... That, that work is not yet complete, and it, but it will be complete. 
And, and Peter wants us to focus on that day. When, and why does he want us to focus on that day? Well, think, remember, he's, t- he's talking to Christians who are, who are struggling, right? They're in difficult circumstances. And, and because of that, they're, they're losing hope. They're despairing. They're, they're afraid. Um, it sounds a lot like us, right, in, in, in our current environment. And, and Peter says, listen, get your minds around, set your hope on what's going to happen when Jesus Christ comes on that last day and is revealed on that last day. He says, all, everything, all the problems, all the suffering, all the things that are right now undermining your hope and contributing to your fear, and, and, and despair and discouragement, all of those things are going to be resolved on that day. Fully and forever resolved. That's, right, that's pretty amazing. And, and he says, think, think on that, because that, if you think on that, it's going to impact not only how you think, but how you act today. I, I like the way one missiologist put it. This is a current missiologist, right, teacher of missions, uh, and he's, he's saying this in a contemporary way, really what Peter just says here. He says there's hope because God is at work. Whether we assume things will generally get better, stay about the same, or get much worse, we have a hope that is certain. As Christ called disciples, Christ dash called disciples, that's who we are. We're disciples called by Christ. He says, we must continually remind ourselves, there's the thinking, that God has called his people to be hope-filled, wide-eyed optimists, ever willing to experience difficulty, knowing that the power of God's spirit is at work moving his world forward to his perfect end. See, that's exactly what Peter was telling these people. Listen, right, he's saying, you're serving Jesus. Jesus has got this, he's got this. On the day he's revealed, not as the sacrifice, but as the king and judge, it's all gonna be perfect, it's all gonna be resolved. Therefore, you can have hope, you can have optimism, not in other people, not in systems, human systems of you know, justice or whatever. Your, your, your hope and confidence and optimism is in Jesus. And that's what allows us to experience, to, to sort of, not, not just experience difficulty, but to but to persevere through it with, with, that, with that hope, okay? So how do you prepare your mind for action? You, you, you give the Lord your, your undivided attention. You focus on his future grace. And third, and this is really the flip side of focusing on future grace, we prepare our minds for action by forsaking false hopes. Forsaking false hopes. Right? Just as we set our hope fully on God's future grace, we also have to forsake the things that we've been been relying on for hope that are not God, that are not Jesus. 
That's what Peter's getting at in verse 14 when he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. He describes those passions of former ignorance, or at least some of them, in verse 18, when he says, the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Guys, isn't it true? I mean, it's so easy for us us. Now I'm going to be talking, I'm talking as a Christian to other Christians. I know there are people who aren't Christians here. Uh, You are not trusting in in Jesus. You're trusting in something. You're putting your hope in something if if you're not a Christian. Christians put their hope in Jesus, but we also so very easily put our hope in Jesus and something else, right? And that something else is always by definition finite. It's a finite value. Jesus is infinite. Anything else we would tend to build our hope on or that we couple with Jesus is a a finite value. Um, And and we do it, it's so easy to do that we don't, uh, often we don't even see anything wrong with it, right? So we've, we've got Christians who who put hope in, in, in Jesus Christ and science. We have Christians who put hope in Jesus Christ and political power. We have Christians who put hope in Jesus Christ and family. We have Christians who put their hope in Jesus Christ and country. You know, the list goes on. Uh, those, those are all good things. Don't, don't misunderstand me. Uh, the, the, the point is, and Peter's point is, they don't support your hope. They, they will let you down. They're finite. How did... He's telling us we need to put our hope fully in Jesus, right? T- taking away everything uh, else. Um, and you know, in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, one of the most radical things Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection is expose as false gods these good things which we often take the most pride in and invest the most hope in. And, and Peter's giving us a wake-up call here as Christians, right? That it's, it, 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 you know, it's very easy for us to inherit uh, values and attitudes from family that may not be Christ-honoring. It's very easy for us to adopt the values of our peers, right? Being pressed into the mold uh, 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 of the world. And these things happen so slowly and so uh, gradually that we don't even notice that they're happening. So Peter's really calling us here to, 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 uh, to self-examination, to think deeply about your hopes. What are you hoping in? Where, is your, where, where does your mind go? What are, you, what, what are you trying to get your mind around? What, where is your, what are you really relying on, right? And, and, and Christians of all people should be the most 
willing to be humble enough and transparent enough and honest enough to do that, to examine ourselves and say, you know what, it, it, here, this is where I've been ignorant. This is where I've been influenced in a, in a non-Christ-honoring way. This is, this, is, this is where I've been pressed to conform to the values of my peers uh, that don't, doesn't reflect a, a biblical uh, ethic, right? We need to break the mold, right? Now, another way Peter says this, it, very briefly, in a, short, in a shorthand way, is he says you need to be holy. That kind of is a, a summary statement of everything he's, he's said so far, right? Verses 15 and 16. You, you need to be holy in your conduct because God's holy. Quoting Leviticus. Now, we can't be holy like God is holy, right? God's holiness is God's godness, right? God is off our scales, right? He is, he's transcendently other. And that transcendent otherness of God uh, is, is his holiness. We, we can't go there. What, what our holiness is as people who live by faith in, in Jesus is being holy, that is, W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly dedicated for that transcendent God's exclusive use. You know, think, you know, you know that, defini- that definition of holiness, that where things are, yes, things or people are dedicated to the Lord for a, for a specific use. I, I remember to my, still to my, uh, embarrassment. Uh, one time we did a combined presbytery service with the presbyteries in the Los Angeles and Orange County and San Diego and, and with our Korean brothers and sisters as well. And so we had this gigantic presbytery meeting at a gigantic Korean PCA up in, uh, up in Orange County. And, and I was leading communion at this service. And uh, in in, the, in the, the, this church's tradition, uh, uh, the, the element, the, 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 the dishes that hold the elements are not to be touched by human beings, right? Because they are, uh, they're dedicated to, to the Lord's use, dedicated for the, the Lord's Supper. And so when you do the Lord's Supper, you're supposed to wear gloves. And I was instructed with that, and I get up there, and there are the gloves there, I've promptly forgot. Just missed it. So there I am, you know, going through the Lord's Supper thing, thinking, you know, hey, I'm doing this. I got this. Meantime, I'm horrifying all my Korean brothers and sisters, right? Because I'm touching with common hands that which has been dedicated to holy use. And I get that, right? That's, that's, the, that's that idea of holiness. We, we, we dedicate things to holy use. And Peter says, that's who we are. You know, we need, we're, we're those kinds uh, of people. Uh, serving God alone. Serving God's agenda, not ours. Serving, uh, promoting his glory, not ours. Promoting his interests, not ours. Right? It's, being holy is the kind of thing that'll get you criticized by you know, your parents or your friends who say, you know, it's okay to be a Christian. Just, man, you're just taken away too seriously. You're not kind of going a little over the top, right? No, that's what, that's what God 
requires is holiness. Okay, so that's the, that's the first principle, uh, the first guiding principle. Think your way to action. Second principle for how you should live as a follower of Jesus, live with reverent fear. This is verses 17 through 21. It, it's stated, can, right, right in verse 17, right? Conduct yourselves with fear throughout, all, throughout the time of your exile. Exiles, remember that for those of you who may not have been here, Peter describes Christians as being people in exile or people that are, we are resident aliens, right, in, in, on the world where this is not our, uh, our, our, our final home. Uh, and he says, so man, it's basically saying, so as long as you're here, you know, as long as you're passing through uh, as a resident alien, conduct yourselves with fear. Now, what, what, would, what motivates us to do that? What, what's the motivation to live your life with a fear of God? Well, on a surface reading, it looks like the motivation is fear itself. I mean, real, raw, knee-knocking fear. Right? It's, uh, look at all of verse 17. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. You see, Peter brings up the idea of God as judge. God, Jesus is coming back on the last day. Jesus is going to judge the world. And judging the world means he's going to judge every human being. That we're, we're all going to stand before him uh, and, and, he, and he's going to judge your deeds and my deeds right alongside everybody else's and he's going to do it with absolute fairness, absolute impartiality. If you think about that for five seconds, that's pretty scary, Right? To stand before this, this utterly transcendent God, right? This holy being beyond our full understanding who's absolutely perfect in justice. Uh, and, and he's going to judge you. Um, the, and, and, you know, the universal reaction in the Bible to any human being getting anywhere near God. And, and sometimes anywhere near God means getting near to his, his uh, other creatures like angels. The immediate human reaction is universally fear. I mean, not knee-knocking real fear, like fall on your face, fear. Shaking in your boots, fear, right? It just, that's just what happens when you, when you are confronted by holiness. And maybe, I, I'm not sure I've told you this story before. It's some weird thing I did when I was in high school. Uh, I, used to, I used to sail a lot, and, and one of the places we'd sail from Orange County would be Catalina Island. And uh, when, when we'd sail to Catalina, at, at a point on, on a nice day, I mean, there have been plenty of rough days, but on a nice day when it's sunny and clear and the water's calm, uh, I'd get over, I'm looking at the charts, know where we are, and when we get over the deepest part of the Catalina Channel, 
I would jump off the boat. Now, that takes a certain trust in my companions, but that, this isn't about faith, but I had a certain faith in my companions that they wouldn't continue on to Catalina and leave me there. But the, what I would I'd jump off with a scuba mask, and, and, um, and I would go through this short exercise of deliberately terrifying myself. And, and, and I would do that by putting the mask on and putting my head in the water and looking down 3,000 feet. Um, I don't know if you've ever done that. I, I do it and, and it absolutely overwhelms me and terrifies me every time. It's almost like vertigo and then, and then it morphs into, this, into, a, into real fear. Um, why? Well, because in, in, some, in one way it's beautiful, right? You got the sun filtering through these shafts of light, filtering through the blue water, and it changes color and changes color and changes color, but it goes down, 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 down until it gets black, right? And the light stops and it's black, and you can't see the bottom, of course. And, and you look around, and it's just the same thing. It's just, it's just, it's so immense, right? It's so beyond my, my, my ability to get my mind around and mysterious uh, and inhospitable that I get scared. And I, and I swim like crazy back to the boat. To, as I said, it's a short exercise. Why did I do that, besides being a weirdo? Um, because I think what I was experiencing was the holiness of God. As that holiness is, is mediated and diluted through his, and, and I experienced that holiness in a diluted, mediated way through his creation, right? So, so, but even in that diluted, mediated way, right? In that one tiny little piece of his creation on, here on earth, I take a look at that and it utterly terrifies me, overwhelms me, right? I think for a moment there, I'm experiencing something of just, right? Just a fraction of the holiness of God. And what Peter is saying is that one day you're going to stand before the, the real deal. And if you thought 3,000 feet of ocean was scary, right? Um, so is raw fear of the finite creature before an infant God, is that, is that what motivates to holiness? The answer is yes, but. Yes, it does, and it should. And, and that fear is, is, is right, it's biblical, I think it's the only res right response to, to, from, of the finite creature to the infinite God, but there's a huge qualifier, right? Notice who this impartial judge is, who this God is, right? Verse 17 tells us, before you learn he's your impartial judge, who is he? He's your father, your father. Go back to verse 14. Peter reminds us that we are his children. You are his child. But even more than that, even more, and that, of course, is a game changer. All of a sudden, this scary 
awesomely scary God that I'm going to stand before is, is a father, is my father, I'm his child. That's a game changer. But more than, even more than that, this father of yours, knowing that you would be standing before him in judgment, ransomed you out of that judgment. Ransomed you. Paid a ransom price. And that ransom price was the precious blood of his son Jesus. Who Peter reminds you appeared in history by God's plan and design for you. For your sake. Peter makes it super personal here. And so I want you to make it super personal. This awesome God, holy God, paid a ransom price that gets you out of, you know, that, that, that redeems you out of his judgment. Um, and he did it for you, for you. Okay. Which means that, of course, what this means is that you're going to be judged. We're all going to face judgment. But what this means is that judgment will not be... We, we will survive that judgment. We will pass that judgment. Your sins will not condemn you in that judgment. Why? Because Jesus was condemned for you. Jesus was condemned in your place. So what motivates you and me to conduct our lives with reverent fear is both the raw fear of a God who is fearful and awesome and dangerous to unholy people, but it's also the fear of offending and trampling on, that, on the costly love and grace of that awesome God who with me in mind sacrificed his son. It's, it's amazing. I've told this story too many times before, and I, I apologize in advance, but I'm going to tell it again for two reasons. One, I know we have some BBS families here who may not have heard it. Two, uh, I can't, despite my best efforts, I can't think of a better story. I've tried. I, I, all, I was going to use Jean Valjean's experience with with the priest, right, in, in Les Miserables, where, where, you know, he is accused of stealing, rightly accused of stealing, uh, but, but, the, but the priest saves him from that charge by saying, no, he, no I made a, I'm making a gift of those candlesticks to Jean Valjean. And that, that grace that he received changed his life, right, Jean Valjean's life. That's a great... It's a great story, it's a great illustration, but the, it fails in one important point is that that priest was not his father. And what, what Peter is saying here is that one of the things that motivates us to live with reverent fear is that we've received gr grace from our father, okay? I was probably seven or eight years old and I committed the cardinal sin. I played with matches. I don't know how many times my parents said, don't play with matches, and what did I do? I knowingly played with matches. I stole matches first, strike one. Played with matches, strike two. Burned down my backyard fort, strike three, that my friend and I had built. Um, and uh, I got in immediate trouble with my mom. Mom was the only one home. Dad was on a business trip. Mom seconded me to my bedroom to await my inevitable judgment. 
Um, and the worst part of it was, and, and I still vividly remember this <laughs> as a boy, I knew that I had done something intentionally wrong. I mean, I, I, when I did it, I knew I was doing wrong. I knew I was going against the will of my parents. I was disobeying them. I knew what, everything I did was wrong. And, and then, you know, then, of course, playing with matches, burn the place down. I, I knew that I, that I deserved whatever punishment dad was going to give me. I deserved it. I, there was no way I could pass off the blame. There was no way I could rationalize it away. I was a dead man walking at seven years old. Now, I, I had a healthy fear of my dad. That doesn't sound right. I mean, th th that sort of awe that, that boys have of their dads because the, the, their dads are good and strong and bigger and stronger and smarter and better than, than I was on all counts, right? Um, but now I knew that I, I was going to be up here before this dad who I held in awe uh, and, and I deserved justice for him, and I was, you know, I was going to get it because I deserved it. Um, and so, finally, gets home. I walk the green mile from my bedroom to the master bedroom. I can vividly remember that too. Dad's in there, sitting on the edge of his bed, and calls me to sit down next to him, and he starts talking to me, and. And we talked the whole thing through, just, just calmly, gently, just dad was asking questions and talking to me and just, you know, what, um, asking questions like, you know, what were you thinking? Um, and uh, he asked me what I learned and I answered. He asked me what I would do in the future. I answered, I, you know, I told him I was sorry. And then it kind of quiets down, right? And, and, and so now I'm, okay, now the, now the discipline hammer's coming down, right? And I'm, and I'm stealing myself for, the, for, for that hammer to come down. And right at that moment, dad pulls out a present from his briefcase that he brought home from a business trip, uh, from his business trip. And he hands it to me, he says, now get out of here. And I told you I experienced something like vertigo and awe in, in, in the Catalina Channel. I think I experienced the same thing when I was seven years old. But it was, but it was because of grace. I mean, my head was literally spinning. I, again, I can remember just walking out that door like it was yesterday. Um, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, what just happened? Right? Now, what you need to know is I never played with matches again. Never. Um, and do you know why? It was not because I was afraid of my dad. right? It was not because I was afraid of consequences. It's not because I was afraid of judgment. I didn't ever play with matches again. If I saw a match, I would walk way around it. <laughs> why? Because I didn't want to disappoint the man who, when I absolutely deserved justice, gave me grace. I just, my, I, 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 did, I didn't want to ever trample on that grace, right? 
Now, that's just one young boy's limited experience of human grace in a, in a small context. I know my dad's embarrassed every time I tell this story because I, I don't, you know, I, dad didn't n sort of appreciate the significance of it at the time. I didn't appreciate the significance of it at the, at the time. But in hindsight, what dad did for me that day was show me a lot about the grace of our Heavenly Father. Friends, Jesus lived in reverent fear. It was Jesus' reverent fear of his father that led him to the cross. And, his reverent, and Jesus' reverent fear was not rewarded with grace like I had been. It, Jesus did everything right. And in reverent fear, followed his father right to the cross and didn't get grace. He got justice. My justice. Your justice. And that's what really moves us, motivates us, powers us to conduct our lives now in reverent fear. We live in reverent fear because Jesus lived in reverent fear for you and got justice so that we can get grace. That's a God you don't want to disappoint. That's a God you will disappoint. Right, we, we, we will, we do, because of our, we, our sin, we trample on that grace. But remember, Peter reminds us, there's future grace. There's always future grace. Right? But may we be those kinds of people who, 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 yeah, not see, yes, see the awesome, fearsome spectacle of a holy God, but who also are just as blown away by uh, by the, the grace that that awesome holy God gives us in Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's, uh, let's reflect on that silently for two minutes. Pray, pray whatever, whatever the Lord's brought to your heart and mind as, as you've, we've gone through these verses. Pray about it. Um, maybe, maybe... Ask him to show you false hopes that you've been relying on that you should repent from, whatever. Uh, and then in a, in a couple minutes, I'll, uh, I'll, close this, uh, in, I'll close this out. So let's, let's pray together. Father, help us to prepare our minds for action. Help us to live in reverent fear of you and your amazing grace. Lord, thank you that it is your amazing grace that relieves our fears and gives us hope and confidence in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.